0: Hi, and welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson.
1: I have to say, I, a woman from the Muslim world working with Islamic art, have experienced American respect and American warmth, and it's a wonderful thing. There is a lot of work to do, but there is great help.
0: That was Dr. Sabiha al kimir consulting scholar of the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Anthropology and Archaeology. A writer, novelist, illustrator, producer, and scholar of Islamic art, her work is concerned with cultural bridging and cultural dialogues. She was born in Tunisia and grew up in Korba, on the eastern shore of the Bon, where she attended Quranic school. She received a degree in English Literature from the University of Tunis, École Normale Supérieure, followed by an MA and PhD in Islamic Art and Archaeology from London University's School of Oriental and African Studies. The founding director of the Museum of Islamic Art in Doha, Qatar, she has served as the curator of and consulting curator to multiple exhibitions, presented at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Louvre, the Dallas Museum of Art, and elsewhere, and she's currently organizing an exhibition titled Under the Same Sky, Birds in Art and Myth. Fluent in English, Arabic, and French, she's conversant in Italian and Spanish, but today we'll just go with English. Welcome Sabiha.
1: Thanks. Great to be here, Max.
0: Sabiha, you are among the most global people I know. How are you navigating a pandemic that has sharpened the appeal of nationalism to so many?
1: Well, I might live in New York City, but I spend quite a bit of time in different countries. I am at home in more than one place. At the start of the pandemic, I found myself marooned in Spain, which, as you know, was one of the countries badly hit by coronavirus. And for three and a half months, it was not safe to travel back to New York City. But in reality, maroon is not the right word because I was lucky to be surrounded by beautiful nature. I was in Andalusia, the south of Spain, which was comparatively safe. And now I'm back in New York City after the worst has passed here. The way I work has not really been affected. I have always worked with institutions in different cities and led projects with teams virtually, compared to many people who have to go through serious adjustments and compromises at the moment, and others who are on the front lines and who are taking care of people, and those who are helping with the practicalities of our lives, I don't have a serious challenge. I can't see my family in Tunisia right now, but I can be patient. So all in all, I feel I'm navigating it well, and I'm fortunate and grateful. The one day at a time motto seems to work most days. Uh, As for nationalism and boundaries, what this pandemic is proving is just how much people need and long for each other.
0: Would you say that your time in Spain allowed you to look upon the pandemic from a different perspective than was happening here in the States?
1: In a way, it did, because, you know, when they established rules and regulations, and they did immediately, and it was quite strict, people followed orders practically and respected the rules. They didn't see it as something contesting their freedom, if you see what I mean. So it was different, I think, from what was happening in the United States from what I could hear. And also, as I said, the fact that they reacted very quickly, that contained it, which was not necessarily the case here.
0: Sibi it's always astonished me that it was in 1777 that Morocco was the first nation to recognize the then fledgling and newly independent United States, a fact which might have escaped the consciousness of our current president. How can Americans get to a place where those of Muslim faith today are treated with the same respect accorded people of other religions.
1: A treaty of peace and friendship was signed between Morocco and the United States, which I think still stands in principle. In Tangiers, there is the oldest U.S. diplomatic property in the world. Now it is a museum in the Medina, you know, the Tangier American Legation Museum. Americans don't need a visa to go to Morocco, nor do they need a visa to go to Tunisia. Islam is Islam. I mean, the word Islam, salam, is a word meaning peace. And interpretations of Islam vary. Some Muslims argue that Islam was hijacked by those who misunderstood it and did things in its name, using religion as a political tool. Muslims are people. And Americans, perhaps, could meet more Muslim people learn more about their culture and form an opinion about you know, those people and those cultural practices as they experience them firsthand. Fear is fed by lack of knowledge, stereotypes, etc. looking at things out of context. So there is a need of learning and a great need for unlearning the suffering of Americans and others At the hands of terrorism in the name of Islam is a terrible, terrible, painful thing. Muslims also have pain in relation to those terrible things that happened in the name of their religion. Perhaps then Americans and Muslims and others of different religions can see each other as humans and respect the religion of others. Faith is a private thing anyway. It's between a person and their creator the first amendment to the United States Constitution says that anyone in the United States has the right to practice his or her own religion, their own religion or no religion at all. The key is for Americans to be Americans and practice that respect and learn more. Friendship and learning about cultures is enriching and can be very helpful to all. Learning languages, Helps us, For example, learning languages helps us cross to other cultures. I personally have been embraced by friends in America, and so has my work with Islamic art and Islamic culture. And I have seen the shift of understanding on more than one occasion. There is a need for healing and understanding. It is also a shifting of experience. The more we learn about the other, the easier it is to put ourselves in their place. It's also about demystification. Demystification happens through learning and putting a name to things, a color to things, etc. The thing is, the fear is real, the pain is real. And you cannot talk about cultural bridging and what Americans should do or shouldn't do without addressing that fear. The idea of a Muslim ban is an American. Americans get to a place of respect for Muslims or people of any other religion by being truly Americans in the sense of respect of the freedom of others. I have to say, I, a woman from the Muslim world, working with Islamic art, have experienced American respect and American warmth, and it's a wonderful thing. There is a lot of work to do, but there is great hope.
0: You began this quest to teach others about the arts of Islam as a younger person by making the choice to pursue your graduate education, not in Paris, which would have been expected as a Francophone Tunisian, but in London. Can you share how and why you made that decision?
1: Even though Paris would have been much easier, London was more interesting for a Tunisian. First, I was yearning for a new horizon. I wanted to cross to something different. As a Tunisian, French culture was already part of me. I had, I have many French friends. I love French culture. In Tunisia, it came at a high price, you know, through 75 years of colonization. The French colonized Tunisia from 1881 to 1956. 1957 was external independence. And my own personal history meant I had a particular relationship with that historical injustice as my father fought for independence and spent a long time in prison as a political prisoner and lost his health as a result and passed away. So. On one level, there was the urge to renounce the idea that the French was the West, and the need to move on from a historical complex. And there was a desire to go towards the English-speaking culture because it was totally novel. My first word in English was at the age of 17. So this was a totally different world. Uh, I remember on arrival in London, everything seemed different. People drove on the left side of the road. On my first headache, I ran to buy calcicrona and the pharmacist tells me, madam, I don't know what you're talking about. You tell me what you've got and I will give you the English equivalent. And it was refreshing to learn that the French way was not the only other way. I was meeting a different culture, meeting the other. I was fascinated and landing at SOAS The School of Oriental and African Studies, part of the University of London, was a fantastic thing. It's a melting pot in the heart of London. People of different cultures from Africa, Japan, uh, Yugoslavia, Lebanon, Germany, etc. And it was a very interesting crossing.
0: So you took it upon yourself to make that massive transition in your life to adapt to a new culture. You have devoted the subsequent years of your life to helping the rest of us adapt to an understanding of the arts of Islam. Could you share with our listeners what you think are some of the biggest misconceptions about the art of the Islamic world?
1: We are talking about the territory from Spain all the way to Indonesia. So there are many styles, many arts within the art. We can distinguish Egyptian art from Syrian, from Spanish, etc., and within different periods. They are arts based on regional and periodical styles. And the study of Islamic art is often classified in terms of ruling dynasties. Say the Fatimids in Egypt from 969 to 1171, or the Nasrids from 1232 to 1492 in Spain, when the Muslim rule came to an end and Christopher Columbus departed to discover America. Yet we call it Islamic art because... These arts were produced in the lands where Islam was the main religion and culture, and it shaped a way of seeing the world. The name is appropriate, but not necessarily accurate. For people who haven't seen Islamic art, there is a general belief that Islamic art cannot include figural representation. This is probably the biggest misconception which abounds among Muslims as well as non-Muslims. This is due to the fact that Islam did not develop an iconography to spread its faith. And the representation of human and animal figures is forbidden in the mosque, in places of worship. But there is nothing in the Quran that forbids representation in secular spaces. Figure representation is present in every medium, from manuscripts, ceramics, wood carvings, textiles, metalwork, etc., It is present in every period, in every region, but it was more popular in some periods than others. Everyday objects, you know, the objects that people lived with, the objects that have survived and that we have in museums and other collections, show us that people were surrounded by figure representation, whether it is in the decoration of a cup from which they drank or a plate from which they ate. And the material culture of Islam, over the centuries, attests to the presence of figure representation. We can unlearn that one.
0: Sabia, you have had the opportunity in your life to handle, with and without gloves, some of the most significant objects in the history of the arts of Islam. To see them end up in a vitrine for public appreciation and learning. Can you share an anecdote or two about that experience of being in the presence of and physically handling a masterpiece?
1: So many memories, Max. The first time I saw a page from the 10th century manuscript, the so-called Blue Quran in the storage rooms of the Seattle Museum of Art, that was an amazing moment. The moment I saw a pierced earthenware filter with a beautiful image of a peacock, even though the filter's place is inside the neck of the jug and no one sees it immediately. was an amazing moment, a humbling. From a precious to a modest piece, there can be this impact. In terms of a piece that ended up being displayed in a vitrine and my role in getting it to the display cabinet, I would say the Fatimid Rock Crystal Ewer in the Kier collection is the piece was carved from a single piece of rock crystal. Imagine the ingenuity of that. In fact, they are still working out how this was done. A close look reveals cheetahs and stylized plant motifs, etc. But an even closer look, especially at the refraction in this piece, shows that the carving, which goes sometimes to a thinness of one millimeter, is extraordinary. This is a rare piece. There are only seven rock crystal ewers in the medieval Islamic world that have survived. It was carved in Fatimid, Egypt, nearly a thousand years ago, and rock crystal had a spiritual, mystical dimension that appealed to the Fatimids. The ewer brings a whole era to life. At that time, there was a fascination with the properties of light and scientists like Ibn al-Haytham, considered by many the father of modern optics, wrote extensively on light. His work was translated into Latin in the late 12th, early 13th century and influenced scholars in the West, including Leonardo da Vinci, Galileo, and Kepler. And Ibn al-Haytham's theory of light and vision and his experiments led to the camera obscura. Some Fatimid rock crystal carvings were given luxurious mounts, used in rituals and kept in cathedral treasuries. And this particular ewer was put in a gold mount by Jean-Valentin Morel in the 19th century. The piece had a fascinating journey. Then seeing it in the gallery in Dallas, where you, Max, were instrumental in bringing it there, then displaying it in Dallas and seeing people mesmerized and looking at it closely, fascinated, People of all walks of life were fascinated. Then seeing the Ismaili community in Dallas, who look at this piece with reverence and faith, and for them to see this piece from their ancestors come close to them on American soil, they are Americans, many of them, and they were deeply interested and affected. That was very touching to see.
0: Well, it feels like a lifetime ago that people were able to go into a museum and in a group experience a work of art without fear of contaminating each other. And yet here we are. So museums are struggling to sort out how and when to come back to life. You've built one museum and you've worked in several others. What do you think upon reopening museums could do without and not miss?
1: Different museums are not able to respond to this challenging time in the same way. Clearly this COVID-19 is not an equalizer. The disparity between museums and their financial capacities is in fact made more apparent. And all institutions are suffering the repercussions of the pandemic, but there is difference between large museums and small museums. Museums are often short of money and are always stretching their resources. They need all the help they can get. The weak aspects of the way museums are financed is actually being exposed by the virus. I think acquisitions, for example, might not be a priority right now. Some programming is not possible anyway, but educational initiatives remain a must. Certainly, educators cannot and should not be laid off the way they have been right, left, and center. Many are, in fact, independent employees and find themselves without an income. For the sake of these people and for the sake of the mission of museums themselves, educators remain a priority. They engage communities, etc. The format needs to adapt itself, of course, but their services remain important. Increased virtual programming, which many museums are currently doing, is only one option. There is a responsibility of making museum spaces accessible and inclusive, and museums are learning to engage beyond their walls, but firsthand experience of materials is essential. Even when museums finally reopen, they are unlikely to be crowded. The question is how to cater and adapt to a different reality. We might focus on getting to know collections better, perhaps.
0: Yes, it really feels that treasuring that experience of being in front of an original object, an authentic work, will be more highly prized than it was before the pandemic. Now you have worked in museums around the world and the politics of that can be very tricky to navigate. Can you compare your experience of working with state-supported museums, abroad typically, versus privately supported museums in the States?
1: It all depends if you are a rich museum or a poor museum. If, if creativity, beauty remains a privilege, or it can be shared by all, if everyone has the right to access to learning or not. State museums somehow declare that the arts are essential to the overall structure. There's a kind of official stated place of the arts within the society, and that that in itself influences many aspects that has reverberations. In that respect, politics might influence what art is shown, perhaps the art of a country with which it has a political or financial transaction. The museum plays a direct role in politics, in the state-owned museums, while the privately-owned museums tend to operate slightly differently. Politics might always be part of the story, but it's different. But in a way, state-supported or private, it's the same as long as the museums have adequate funds.
0: So in addition to... Museums. your life has also brought you into universities and as a scholar who embraces creativity and not just academic rigor how have you managed to keep that unique alloy of yours intact while in the cloistered and somewhat judgmental context of higher education
1: my approach has always been holistic to everything I do Rigor is important, academic or otherwise, and it is a guiding principle in all my work. Also, somehow, whatever I do always feels to me as part of something bigger. It doesn't necessarily fit in a contained field. It aspires to connect and bring things together. Conceptually, the connection is clear in the overall body of my work, but it all comes together at the core. And the different forms and disciplines might vary, but the style and the approach hold it together. I like the word alloy. It's making me smile. (laughs) It is a metal made by combining two or more components, especially to give greater strength or resistance to corrosion, like tin and copper, to make bronze. I think my driving force has been open to learn from different fields while remaining focused and also attentiveness to nurturing the different facets, academic, creative, and not undermining one or the other. Soon after bringing the Kia collection to Dallas and opening a new gallery of Islamic art with all that that entailed and the challenges of that kind of project, I started painting, illustrating Kalila wa Dimna, fables which originated in ancient India in Sanskrit, translated into Persian in the 6th century and into Arabic in the 8th century in Iraq, which influenced the, Les Fables de La Fontaine in the 17th century. That took me back to my childhood. A simplicity that was very enjoyable, and I picked up where I left off. My first published illustrations were when I was 15 years old, and when I was 18 years old, I illustrated Le Nuage Amoureux, The Amorous Cloud, the island of animals when I was in my 20s, and so on. So to do Keli Lawadimna was a tender exercise that made that side grow a little more. So all these sides are interconnected and they come together and make a whole. So that keeps them going because they serve the same essence, I think. They focus when things are not serving an artificial purpose. And the search never stops. The format, the tool might change, but the search is perpetual and paradoxically keeps the alloy intact, as you call it. When I wrote the Blue Manuscript, a work of fiction around the medieval manuscript, fiction felt like a good way in the search of truth, of exploring something about a piece of so-called Islamic art outside the art history field. Yet, The Blue Manuscript is a novel based on a foundation of history and artistry. It crosses boundaries and liberates the self with fiction. It's set in Egypt, a very recognizable Egypt. The village where the archaeological dig takes place doesn't exist.
0: Sabiha, you touched on your childhood, your youth, and I'm curious if you could give some advice to your younger self or for that matter, to a younger scholar, making her way in the field of art history, of cultural history, what kind of advice would you give?
1: Sadly, none of us can give advice to our younger self. It's good to be here, and I wouldn't have got here without all the mistakes I made. But if I could give advice to myself, I'd perhaps say, do more art and less history. But in the end, they are both important. To other young people, I would tell them, make it your own journey, not mine or any others. Give from yourself. Do what you love to do and love what you do, because that's what makes people brilliant at their work.
0: And that creativity has taken you in so many directions. You've written two novels and are never far from the keyboard. What are you working on now?
1: I'm working on a book that combines words and images and it's not illustration. Uh, I'm also making art and I'm writing and developing the exhibition you mentioned at the start of this conversation entitled Under the Same Sky Birds in Art and Myth, an exhibition that combines an enchanting feel with scientific fact. A paradox to be working on a project about birds during this period of confinement but also meaningful. It will raise awareness and make the spirit fly, I hope. It is an exhibition developed with my team through my foundation, and I'm excited about the foundation's work to come.
0: It promises to be very eye-opening, and I'm looking forward to it as well. Sabiha, thank you so much for making time today to talk to us about your life and about some of the ways we can learn from what you've learned.
1: Thank you so much, Max.
0: We've been speaking today with Dr. Sabiha al kemir writer, novelist, illustrator, producer, scholar of Islamic art, consulting scholar of the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Anthropology and Archaeology. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of ArtScoping.